Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Okay, well, praise the Lord. I second that. Thank you for your faithfulness and, and uh, love for the Lord and love for the Word of God this morning. First John chapter 5 is where we're headed, so if you'd like to go there. Well, this, uh, this is 2021, and when we look back uh, at 2020, back a year plus, 2020 was quite a year, wasn't it? And uh, hasn't been much smoother this year. I just saw a man uh, recently, just, he, we were eating somewhere, and he was just eating on another table over there, and I looked at his arm, and he had tattooed on his arm, it said, 2020, a year to remember. And I thought, why would you do that? I'm trying to forget 2020, and you're putting a tattoo on your arm. I have no idea why he would do that. But it's incredibly sad, I mean, so many things that have happened, but also in some ways uh, just fascinating to me how this, the pandemic and the lockdowns and everything that has taken place all over the world have affected people. And so, you know, you hear a story, you can talk to anybody in the entire world. If you could speak every language of the world, you ask them, how has the pandemic affected you? From the Sherpas in Nepal to the Central Valley of California, ask anybody and they'll tell you a story of how this one thing has affected their life. Everybody has a 2020 story. And, um, but honestly, as you th- if you think about it, the world has always been uh, brutal. Constant sin, constant immorality, taking people out left and right. Sorrows of sickness, sorrows of pain, sorrows of death. The inner struggles of people to make sense of why things happen. The disappointments in leaders and disappointments in people that we love and they fail us. The unfulfilled expectations. People start out feeling good about their life and things happen and something, all their expectations just shoot down. The daily frustrations that everybody goes through with their jobs, their family, their own life circumstances, and then, then you had temptations and failures that people are trying to deal with in their own lives, and then discouragement that's just trying to creep in every single day and just wipe people out and keep everybody in bed. And then you throw a pandemic in there and all this other stuff that's been going on in our world, and it's a wonder, honestly, that anybody does get out of bed in the morning. I mean, really. But based on what we're going to see today, A Christian should never be defeated by any of this. Nothing. Through the Apostle John, God wants his children to know that they are overcomers. That is the word he uses. You are an overcomer. And you cannot be defeated by anything in this world. 
Of the 24 times that the word overcomer is used in the New Testament, John, the Apostle John, uses it 21 of those 24 times throughout his different books, the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation. Christians ought to walk around with this unshaken inner confidence. We should never be uh, taken out. We might have things happen to us, but that doesn't uh, shake us. How does he convince, how does the apostle convince uh, this church of this fact that you are an overcomer if you have Jesus? Well, like all of Scripture, he tells them what God says, and that is true. And it's true in the heavenly realm, and it's true everywhere. But it's up to each Christian to take that truth and then apply it to their life. And how does a person apply it, a truth, a biblical truth to their life? It's by faith. That's how it's done. And 1 John 5 is all about building this overcoming faith. So let's look at that. Here's the passage that, or here's the message that comes across here in this next portion Let me show it to you. Four things you become when you have faith in Christ. The first two are this. You become a child of God. When you have faith in Christ, you become a child of God. But not only that, you become a lover of other children of God. We talked about that last week. Let's go through this, these first few verses here. Watch this. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. So let's break this down real quick. The word, God's word says, whosoever. It matters not who you are, where you come from, what language you speak. If you believe the truth about Jesus, then you are born again. You are born of God. And praise the Lord. I love that word, whosoever. (laughs) I love the word, whosoever. Because I may not make the A list, (laughs) but I can always make the whosoever list. Always. So when God says, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God, then I know I I can be in that list. Believeth. The word believeth is an important word in the Bible. It means to place your trust. It's the same word that we use uh, you can use for trust or, or faith, but it's more than just mental assent. It's more than just, okay, agreeing, that's a fact. This is a 100% encompassing, I'm going to trust. As, as some have said, it's like trusting a parachute. That's the kind of uh, belief we're talking about. You put all of your life and 100% of your trust in that one thing. And what is, who are we trusting in this case? It is Jesus, you have to trust or believe that Jesus is the Christ. You must believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God from heaven, God in the flesh. Now let's remember, this in particular is what the Gnostics, the false teachers of the day, were tripping over. This is what they had the hardest time with. You can't, in their minds, the the earthly and the spiritual were so separate, and they could never meet together. And so God could never take on flesh. That would be, to their minds, impossible. What happened, they claimed, is, and this is one branch of the, um, the Gnosticism that uh, John was facing and the, their leader, Serinthus. They have this in, in, uh, in, in papers that go back. But Serinthus said that God, <clears throat> this God's spirit, came upon Jesus when he was baptized. 
And then it left Jesus right before he was crucified. And so Jesus himself wasn't actually fully God and fully man. He just took on this God spirit for a time. But John says something different here, and that's what John's dealing with. And so he says it very clearly, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ, you have to believe that. And if you believe that, and you put all your trust in that, then you are born of God. He is the anointed one, the Christ, that word Christ means Messiah, the Son of God, that he is God in the flesh, ultimately. Now, if somebody's born, a birth always is into a family. If you're born, you're always in the family. The Christian is born into the family of God. Every, that's what's exciting about when somebody gets saved. Not only do you go to heaven, but you're born into a brand new family. Amen. And look what God says. And everyone that loveth, or everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. Simply put, that means since we now love the Father, he who begat us, then we also love uh, the, those that are begotten of him, the, his other children. If you love the begetter, then you'll love the begotten. And it's just part of what happens. This is like we talked about last week. A truly born-again person will love other believers. You can't help it. It's just in you all of a sudden to like and love your brothers and sisters. It's, it's the common ground here that we're talking about of Christians. It's not race. It's not class. It's not culture, it's not language, and it's not any other thing except for our common birth in the Savior. Our common birth. We're all born of God. We don't limit our love to only those in certain denominations or certain groups. Anybody that's in my theological persuasion, that's the only Christians I get along with. If any of those things mean more to us than our common salvation the fact that we're all born of God and the common lordship of Jesus Christ, then something's very wrong. We had, a, we had the, there's a new pastor in Lodi, uh, came recently to Baptist Church there, Southern Baptist Church, and, and uh, he and his young family there, just sweet people, love the Lord. And, um, and we had them over for dinner a couple weeks ago. And uh, I, I reminded him like we, like I tell almost all the pastors I meet and talk to, and that is, uh, we need more Bible-believing churches, not less. I would love to see one on every single corner. Uh, there should be more of those than Starbucks. And we're all working together. Uh, you know, in fact, uh, it was last summer, I, I, mentioned, I may have mentioned this to you, but uh, Bear Creek Community Church just across the farmland over there on Lower Sacramento Road. It was, you know, everybody was, people were having services outdoors and and uh, early in the morning they were having their service and I, I heard Pastor Paul preaching. I mean, he, he, can get, he can get going, man. And uh, so he was booming out, and I heard him. I was walking in our parking lot, and I heard him all the way across the farmland preaching. And so I called him up, left a message. I said, man, I, this, every farm needs to have the preaching just coming through it. So good job, brother. Preach it, preach it. Now, we might believe and teach some different things, but we have a common salvation, and we have one daddy. That's the point here. And if you're a parent, then you know what I'm about to say is true. You know how much you hate it when your children argue and fight. You hate it. Imagine that's how much must God uh, must feel there when he sees his children fighting among themselves. But there's something else that John adds. There's other results that happen when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. 
You become a child of God. You become a lover of other children of God. And then you're also characterized by joyful obedience. This is what happens. You become characterized by joyful obedience. Verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and keep his commandments. See, when we're overflowing with love and and joyful obedience, then it it spills out onto everyone around us. And uh, that's how you know you're going to love the children of God. If you'll love God, keep his commandments, and all that stuff is just going to kind of start to spill over. The more I love God, the more I uh, obey God, it's going to spill out into my wife. It's going to spill out over into my family. It's going to spill out over into everybody I know. It is sometimes said that the best thing a father can do for his children is to love his wife, their mother. And in the same way, first way for a child of God to love his brothers and sisters in Christ is to love God first. And if you love the parent, you'll love the child. It all works together here. But notice that when John speaks of loving God, it isn't all about the emotions and the mushy-gushy part of love. Although we should love God with our emotions. I really do think that. I think every part of us ought to love God. But the scripture here is very clear in this passage that John is saying that loving God is revealed in our obedience. It's revealed in the fact that we keep his commandments. Now, we don't usually make the connection between love and law. (laughs) They sound like opposite things. But when it comes to God, uh, obeying his commandments is the ultimate expression of our love. It's, it's, it's It's a... very, very special kind of love that we have for Jesus. In fact, Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Which is what John is basically just repeating here. Look in verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. A big part of loving someone is seeking to please them and bring them joy. You're thinking about them. What would What would bring them joy? What would bring them pleasure? And God's commandments are just an extension of who he is. They're just an extension of what he's all about. They're an extension of his nature. Therefore, when we keep his commandments, it's just doing what brings him pleasure. It's just doing what he likes, doing what makes him happy. And John adds this. He says, doing that is not grievous. Doing that is not a burden. For the believer. Some people, man, they look at God's commandments and they act like they're so heavy and so hard. And by the way, that word grievous means literally heavy. And they just take it on themselves like, man, it's just so hard. Hold on a second. Jesus in Matthew eleven thirty said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. God is not saying that commandments won't be difficult to do at times. Let's just be honest. But what he is saying, because our flesh is going to put back, but this is what it means when he says the commandments are not grievous. They're not heavy. They're not, they're not a burden. Number one, he, I think he means that the God, that God always provides the strength to do what he has commanded. If he commands somebody to do something, he will always give strength to meet that command. He's not going to tell us to do something and, and then uh, something we could never, ever do. And then number two, when you truly love someone, nothing they ask of you is a burden. I think that's a big part of this passage as well. When you truly love God, his commandments are not grievous. 
There's a famous old parable. I love this one. There's a little boy who was carrying his crippled brother to school each day, the schoolhouse. Every day he would put his little brother on his back. His brother was crippled, and, and uh, he would just he would carry him on his back all the way to the schoolhouse. And one day as he was w- walking by a farm, the farmer said, Son, I see you every day carrying that little guy all the way to the school. Isn't he too heavy for you? And the boy responded, No, mister. He ain't too heavy for me. He's my brother. Love makes the load lighter. It's just a matter of who you love. You know, back when Elena and I were still boyfriend and girlfriend, I used to love to drive long distances to see her. I would, I would go to the ends of the earth. And it was before cell phones. That's how old we are. Surprise, surprise, right? I used to spend uh, all our mo- my money on gas and then phone bills. And man, it was so expensive. But there was no price too high. It was not grievous. It was not a burden. It was not heavy. I didn't mind paying it at all. Now, I was broke when we finally got married, <laughs> but we had love. <laughs> you know, if you're around somebody who truly is in love with God, there's nothing that God could ask that would be grievous. You want me to do that, Lord? I'll be glad to do it. It's not too heavy. I can do it. Even concrete work. <laughs> now, specifically, the commandments John speaks of here are any of God's commandments that apply to you and apply to me. Now, I don't think John's talking about the sacrificial system, the Jewish sacrificial system, or the ceremonies, or the feasts. I want to be specific. But this is speaking of those moral commandments that God has given every person to live by. But, but these laws that God gives us are not like American laws or laws from another country. These laws are birthed and drafted in the heart of a loving God. They come from God's nature of love for his children. So why wouldn't we appreciate his commandments? Let's be honest. If there's something very much wrong when we, when a Christian bucks against something God has said in his word, it's just, there's something strange about that. Something strange about trying your hardest to find a loophole into something God has said. There's just something weird about that. It's often a thing for young people. This is, I, I think every, I wish every young person was raised in church and was around the things of God and got saved at an early age. But there is a downside to that. A lot of those young people grow up and sometimes they're looking for a loophole. And that's, it's, a, it's a special temptation that some young people have, Christian young people. These commands, they feel like, man, I want to go stretch my wings. And where's the loophole? Where's the loophole? These, these commands are heavy, they think. And it's truly, they just haven't fallen in love with God yet. Once you fall in love with God, you just submit and say, you know what, this is a sweet thing. I, I'm, I'm glad, to, glad to serve you, Lord. So when we get saved, we get a love for our new father. We have love for our new family, a new heart to live in a joyfully obedient life. But there's another great thing that comes with faith and a new birth. You automatically become an overcomer. And this is so special, a victorious overcomer. Look at verse 4. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth 
that Jesus is the Son of God. It says, whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. The idea that anything that's born of God could be defeated by the world was very strange to John. And it should be strange to us. How could something that's born of God be defeated by this world? John's pumping up the church here. And he's saying the reason we have victory over everything the world throws at us is because we're in a victorious family. You're in God's family. And the reason you're in this family is because of faith. The faith that you have placed in Jesus as the Son of God. So we're talking about Jesus being the Son of God, the incarnation, God taking on flesh. If you believe that, here's what happens. What you're believing then is that God came down and walked in your shoes, walked in mankind's shoes. He experienced all the things that we've experienced. He felt the things that we feel, but then he triumphed over all of it. The world did its absolute worst to Jesus, and he rose from the dead, having victory over death. And when we get born again, then we get to share in the victory that he already purchased for us. There's nothing this world can come up with that can defeat us. Nothing. You know, throughout history, the followers of Christ have faced all kinds of treatment by the world. The most heinous and wicked and horrible. But God's people remain unshaken and in peace. They're overcomers. They're overcomers, not overcomed. They're overcomers, not understayers. (laughs) But how? How is a person an overcomer? And it says, "This, this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. So since believing on him is the key, to being born again, having that faith. The key to victory, then, is that faith. But it's not just that initial uh, come to Jesus, pray a prayer, and that's it, and, you're, and that's that faith. That's a, that's a beginning place for our faith, and God gives us a measure of faith. But our faith c- grows, and we need to consistently abide in faith and an ongoing reliance and a trust in Jesus. Again, it's a 100% all-encompassing faith. It takes over. And this is what we believe. We believe Jesus is the Son of God. We believe He's God in the flesh. And He came and walked in our shoes and felt what we feel. The great Bible commentator Matthew Poole said this. He said, Knowing who Jesus is fills the soul with so great things concerning Him as to easily turn this world into a contemptible shadow and deprive it of all its former power over us. Once you know, once you get it, who's on your side, nothing can take you down. How could anything take you down? Uh, You know that old uh, story of the dog who fell into the farmer's well, and after assessing the situation, the farmer looked down deep into that well, not seeing any way to get that dog out, decided there's no other way but just to go ahead and bury this dog and put him out of its misery. When the farmer began shoveling, initially the dog was just hysterical and going crazy. But as the farmer continued shoveling, the dirt would hit the dog's back and uh, the dog would shake it off and step up. Shake it off, step up. Shake it off, 
step up. The more dirt that he th- the farmer threw on the dog, the more that dog just shook it off and stepped up. Shook it off, stepped up. This is how we face our problems too. This is how an overcomer faces his issues and the problems and the stuff that comes at him. He knows he has Jesus. He knows he has a triumphant Savior. And so everything that comes on him is just just a little dirt on my back. (laughs) I shake it off and I step up and I shake it off and I look up. Now notice the specifics of this verse. You must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. As I mentioned, the incarnation. God in the flesh. So I want to... Want us to notice a little something about faith itself. It's not just faith that gives us these things. It is what our faith is placed in. Amen. The object of our faith. You know, faith in and of itself does nothing. Uh, if you have faith in a tree to help you, that you can be as genuine and sincere as anybody else, but the object of your faith has zero power, and it can do nothing for you. And faith in Jesus, that's why, you know, it's sort of, uh, it's one of those little petty things, but it kind of bugs me sometimes when, when people talk about, I'm going to go share my faith. Well, um, that's, I mean, that's, I understand what you're saying. I'm not going to beat anybody up for saying it. I probably said it before too. But really, if you think about it, I'm not sharing my faith. I'm sharing Jesus Christ. I'm sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ that can save. I believe in that and I trust in that. But, um, but faith in Jesus is, is trust in someone who's trustworthy, solid, powerful, and able to help. Adrian Rogers says, by faith, man brings pleasure to God. And by faith, God brings treasure to man. But then the question, how do we know that our faith is grounded in truth? How do I know that this is, the object of my faith is strong, that, that it is true what I'm believing in? Well, that's what John addresses next. There are three witnesses from God that he gives about Jesus. That we know, we can know that we know who Jesus is. Verse 6, this is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. The proof, he says, of Jesus, or two of the proofs, is the water and the blood. Now, what is John referring to here? Uh, I'm going to get technical for a few minutes. This has been a difficult passage to interpret for, for Bible students, and you can, you can hear a lot of different things from a lot of different people. Good people give different interpretations. Here's a couple of them. One of them say that they believe that the water is speaking of our own baptism, and the blood is speaking of receiving communion, the ordinances of the church. Other people say that the water and the blood are describing the, what happened when they Uh, pierced the side of Jesus into his heart, and and the Bible says the water and blood came out. Still others say that the water was speaking of Jesus' natural birth, as in a uh, a, a birth uh, from from Mary, and then uh, the blood speaks of his death on the cross. But there's one more, and I I lean this way, and it's also the, the oldest recorded Christian understanding of this passage. It's written... Record, first recorded by uh, Tertullian, but most likely, I think that John is meaning the water of Jesus' baptism and the blood of his crucifixion. This fits the context of the, of the passage here so well also. Because remember, again, uh, we're talking about these Gnostics. 
And the Gnostics said that Jesus, or that God, the God Spirit, came on Jesus when he was baptized and left him right before the cross. So notice what John says here specifically. And by the way, if someone believes that, believes that God in flesh didn't die on the cross, what he's trying to do is, is um, protect God from contact with human pain. And they just can't, uh, they can't wrap their heads around that. But by, but by doing that, you're also removing God from the very act of redemption and redeeming mankind. And, and, this is, and there's a lot of other problems with that as well. It's very unbiblical, and it strips the cross of all of its power. So John here says that the witness of the Son of God was not only the water of baptism. Notice how he specifically says that. It's not only the water. It's not only the water. You Gnostics that say that, Je- that the Spirit came on him at the water. It's not only the water, but it's the cross also. The blood of the cross, the blood. Jesus was God in the water, <laughs> and Jesus was God on the cross. He was the perfect sacrifice for sins that we needed. And then John, in this verse, brings up the Spirit. And so those, the water of baptism, the wa- the, everything that happened and took place on the cross, are all these witnesses to mankind on this earth that, of, of Jesus and who he was. And then he brings up the Spirit, which witnesses the truth of who Jesus is also in this world. The Holy Spirit gives the Word of God, which convicts people and convinces people, a sinful world, of their need for Jesus. And then he, the Holy Spirit is given to indwell believers and, and give them the witness that Jesus is who he says he is. And that becomes that inner witness. But let's move to verse 7. Verse 7 is a unique verse. Verse 7. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. Now, a powerful and wonderful truth of the Trinity. But I have to admit, this verse has a lot of debate about whether John actually wrote it. I'm not going to go into the deep debate here, okay? But there is one thing that is agreed upon. Some think, well, maybe this is a scribal note that kind of worked its way into the actual passage. And so a lot of the manuscripts don't have it. And that you might even have a note in your Bible that says that, or you have some of the modern versions that don't have the verse at all. And that's why you may not see it in there. But here's one thing that's agreed upon by everybody. The truth of this verse. There's no debate among good conservative Bible scholars that God is truly three in one. It's a true statement. And and they all witness to what Jesus has done. And even if this verse wasn't written by John, the doctrine of the Trinity is not shaken. It is clearly taught throughout the entire New Testament. And uh, even if we didn't have that verse, the Trinity stands alone. The doctrine of the Trinity is very clear. Now, I only mention this little debate here because I feel I need to because a Jehovah's Witness one day may throw this in your face. We may not think about this verse much, but they love to bring this verse up and say, see, this this wasn't in the manuscripts or not all the manuscripts. It is in in some manuscripts, but it is in others. And you, so your Bible is shaken. Uh, but I, they like to try to disparage our Bible. But the point of this passage, and, and it's very clear that the truth stands on its own. It is a true, true statement. But the point of this passage is that John is talking about the clear, God-given witnesses that we have that show that Jesus is the Son of God. It's true. And the witnesses God has are, are clear in verse 8 and 9. And, these, and there are three that bear witness in earth the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. 
If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his son. Now, according to Jewish law, it required three witnesses to establish a fact in a court of law. You need three witnesses. So here were the three witnesses from God about who Jesus was. Number one is the spirit. Number two, the water. And number three, the blood. I'll briefly uh, describe those. The spirit testifies through the word. He wrote the word and he, and he uses the word to prick the hearts of people. And the Holy Spirit is always working. He's convicting people of their sin. He's telling people to turn to Jesus. The Holy Spirit very much is speaking truth in this world through many different ways, but, but primarily through the word of God. Also through the water, the baptism account with God. Remember when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended as a dove on Jesus. God, the Father, spoke. There was this amazing moment right there, and that is a witness to who Jesus truly is. And then the blood, speaking of the cross, and all the supernatural events that took place on that moment that Jesus died on the cross, the darkness, the quaking, the veil that was rent, etc., etc. All these things that were taking place in that moment, all of that speaks to the fact that witnesses to the fact of Jesus was God in the flesh dying on the cross. Jesus was no mere man. He was the Son of God. Then John points to a very logical reason in verse 9 as to why we should believe those three witnesses of God, and that is if people receive a witness of man in all kinds of things every day, well, then why wouldn't you believe these three witnesses of God who is far more trustworthy? Amen. You believe it when someone gives you directions or tells you about an event that happened in their life. You take their word for it. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't you believe God? How much more should you believe God? You know, today we see people believing man over God so much. It's a plague. It's a pandemic is what it is. Even so-called Christians. I'll accept, I'll accept man's word in this textbook about evolution, but not God's word about creation. I'll accept man's word that Jesus was a great man, but that he was not God in the flesh. I'll accept man's word about reproductive rights, but not God's word that says thou shalt not kill. There's Christians that believe this. I'll accept what this author says about the roles of men and women, and there are no, none of that, over what God has clearly revealed in his word Amen. and in nature, by the way. I look at the books out there, even Christian books, and I think, man, no wonder we've lost our minds. Amen. Like, I remember my mom used to say, why can't people just read the Bible? <laughs> There's a really good book already available for us. Why can't we just read the Bible? Why do we keep questioning the once and for all written word of God? The word of God has given us uh, witnesses, and God has given us witnesses that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Amen. The gospel came into a world of multiple religions and said this, there is one way to heaven. Yes. Boy, did that cause a lot of problems <laughs> among people. They even put him on the cross for that, and it does now too. You come into this world and you say there is one way to heaven. And boy, people don't like that. But it doesn't change the truth. It's the truth. And here's the conclusion, verses 10 through 12, as we end here. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us, 
eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. It doesn't get much clearer than that. There are not multiple ways to have eternal life. There's only one. There's not a special knowledge or enlightenment that people get that leads to eternal life. There's no eightfold path or the five pillars or there's no rituals or no good deeds. None of that. If you, if you have the Son, you have life. If you do not have the Son, then you do not have eternal life. If you've refused the offer of salvation and made God a... Uh, if you refuse the offer of salvation, you've made God a liar. You've said, God, I do not believe you. I do not believe those witnesses that you've sent and shown the world. Uh, you're a liar. Charles Spurgeon said, what if one says, well, I want to believe, but I can't? Here's what he says. Hearken, O unbeliever. You have said, I cannot believe. But we'd be more honest if you had said, I will not believe. The mischief lies here. Your unbelief is your fault, not your misfortune. It is a disease, but it is also a crime. It is a terrible source of misery to you, but it is justly so. For it is an atrocious offense against the God of truth. You've made him a liar, John said. If you do not believe what he has given, you've made God a liar. God has given all the witnesses that a man needs to come to faith in Christ. People keep talking like they're looking for a sign or something else to show up. There's nothing else. There's nothing else. All the witnesses are there. We have enough information to make a a reasonable, to make a strong uh, step of faith. Everything is there. But the flip side of this, real quick, is the amazing good news that if you're a believer, for those that aren't a believer, you've, you've called God a liar. But for those who do believe, you have life. You have it now. And you are an overcomer. That's, that is what God has said. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath the Son, you have life. You have it now. End with this. There's a great illustration to remind us how that we can't get to heaven. I love this. Listen to this. Food critic, Paul Grinberg, he set out to eat at the world's top 100 restaurants. I love this. I, would, I wish I could do this job. Since 2011, he has had meals at 99 of them. He's, so far, he's traversed mountain roads, been lost in the fog, snowed in, stranded, secured, speeding tickets in Spain. He's been to France, Switzerland, Germany. He's crisscrossed time zones. Yet the last restaurant on his list, a small little members-only sushi house in Japan, has remained out of reach for him. He recently told the Wall Street Journal, I can't get to, into one restaurant in Tokyo. That's just crazy. What's the problem? Sushi Saito, an eight-seat restaurant in Tokyo, has private membership. And outsiders have to either dine with a member or have a member make them a reservation. And so he's been trying to track down connections everywhere. He's have he's has friends at Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, uh, American Express, Japanese car makers, hedge funds. Nobody can get him in. But he can't understand it. He keeps saying, he goes on uh, Instagram, I guess, he goes everywhere, just somebody, please, let me in, let me in. Can anyone help me with Sushi Saito? I want to get in. 
Uh, It made me laugh, but this is exactly how it is with eternal life. You only get in one way. If you have the Son, then you come into the banquet of heaven. You get it. But if you don't have the Son, you do not have life, and you'll always be on the outside. Man, what a clear, clear statement. There is no other way to heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We love you, Lord. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.